you have your Bibles with you, would you be so kind to turn to Jeremiah chapter number 6. Jeremiah chapter number 6. And we will be looking now at Jeremiah chapter 6 with a very important verse of Scripture. And if you would read out loud with me from Jeremiah chapter 6, I'd like to thank the boys and girls for following along today. We're at verse number 16 in Jeremiah chapter 6 together. Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Now we all know that Israel, as a people, became very, very much out of the favor of God because they chose not to walk in the old paths. That is the sad part about the Israel uh, people that God called to be his own special people. However, it is with great joy today that we'll be celebrating some of these old pathways today, tomorrow, and in the unfolding days that will come very shortly. We will be celebrating a marriage tomorrow, and that's one of the ancient pathways found very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter number 2, where God expressly says in verse 18, it is not good, not good, that a man should be alone. And then the rest of that chapter is going to be devoted to the idea that since it's not good for a man to be alone, then God ordained and brought forth out of the man the woman. And from that point forward, after that initial appearance of Eve, then God took every man out of the woman. So he just reversed the order there. But that's one of the old paths is the celebration of a godly biblical union in holy marriage. Marriage has historically been one of the underpinning foundational landmarks of Western Christian civilization. And everybody can understand quickly why marriage is a foundational pillar of great truth for every culture and every people that will remain a godly people. And if they want their country, their civilization to perpetuate, marriage is one of the old pathways that is still as absolutely necessary today as it ever was. None of the old pathways that God ordained from the beginning ever grow out of date. Because God is an unchanging God. His word never changes. What God believed and wrote in his Bible many thousands of years ago remain absolutely true today. Think of the Bible as being like, very much like an anvil. Uh, my father brought and carried an anvil back here from Colorado in 1941, and I can remember my mother saying, Leo, do you really need to bring that anvil? Because, you know, they're kind of heavy. And every little space in a 1934 Ford pickup truck is precious. And we made about five or six trips with that pickup with a trailer behind it, but he, he insisted on bringing his anvil. Now, the, the Bible is very much like an anvil. 
If, how many have never seen an anvil? Okay. Well, they are used by a blacksmith to beat out a plowshare or to take hot, red-hot metal and you can beat it into whatever you want to, shape it, because you will heat it up in a, in a uh, uh, system that will make it red-hot. So uh, the Bible has been the anvil upon which agnostics, skeptics, atheists, and every gainsayer in the world has beat upon trying to undermine the veracity and the truth and the timelessness of the Word of God. And I'm so happy today to find that so many people still carry a Bible, believe in the Bible, read the Bible, look at the Bible, study the Bible, and build your life around the, the Word of God. That's fundamental to the survival of who we are as a people. So marriage is one of those foundational pillars. It's a foundational cornerstone of who we are as a people. And as long as time endures, marriage will still be relevant. As long as time endures. If we knew that Jesus Christ would be coming back tomorrow at 6 o'clock, we still ought to carry on the wedding that will be held here tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Because marriage is relevant. In fact, it might prepare us for the marriage of the Lamb. Be a good rehearsal for that. So marriage is one of those ancient pathways that we need to carve out. And God forbid how many people in our generation have just simply dispensed with the idea of marriage. And if they haven't dispensed with it altogether, and people just come and live together, sort of like out in the creatures out in the forest, they never bother to stand and make vows. They don't come before the altar of God and sanctify and consecrate their union as a husband and a wife to build the most marvelous institution that God ever put together, and that is marriage. Whatever you may think about marriage, it is foundational to everything that we want to build upon in a Christian world from a Christian worldview. We cannot underestimate the value of marriage as being one of the old pathways that God has ordained for His children to walk in. More than half, actually about 64 or 5 percent of, of all young adults in America today do not bother with marriage, they simply live together. That is shameful that we have degenerated as a society to a point where the Bible has become so ill-respected, so terribly ignored. But there is a price to pay, and our, our social order in America is certainly witnessing the consequences of that horrendous decision of living together apart from the God-ordained uh, marriage foundation. Today, we are also celebrating another uh, ancient pathway. It's called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, of course, has foundations that go back to the dawn of history. Everything that is great, wonderful, good, wholesome begins in the book of Genesis. And without the book of Genesis and the beginning of the root of all truth, we would be in trouble for sure. Because all Bible truth has its origin in the foundations laid in the book of Genesis. So the Sabbath is another one of those glorious pathways that God has ordained. Now on the 4th of October, next Tuesday, we will be celebrating the Day of Atonement here. 
The Day of Atonement is still another one of the old pathways. It's a day of, of fasting, supplication, humiliation, and a, a call to each of us to spend some time looking at our lives to see how we are living our life, if it is pleasing to God, or if there are some changes that we need to make. What are the changes that we need to make in our life? What might be some of the ways that we've wandered away from the pathway of godly uh, living? So the Day of Atonement's a wonderful ancient pathway to visit. Five days after the Day of Atonement, we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is still another one of the ancient pathways that are found in Scripture. So I want to, first of all, let me praise God for the young people that are seeking to walk in these old pathways because they are not old they will never grow stale. They will never grow out of place, out of date. They will always be relevant. And those who find and walk in those pathways are going to be blessed and blessed and blessed in ways that they could never imagine, both in this world and in the world that is to come. I promise. That's a promise the Bible makes to us. So I would like very much this morning to remember then that Jeremiah is calling us to the ancient pathways. Now we're going to spend just a little time this morning zeroing in on the holy days, that is the Sabbath and the festival days. Now generally speaking, everybody has a relatively good understanding of the Sabbath and the Holy Days. But remember that we always have children growing up. There's always a new generation coming on. And that new generation coming on always has to have the truth uh, passed on to them. So it's not like we learn something and then we move on and don't revisit it again because there's always new children Growing up, maturing, with understanding. So today, this is a very fundamental elementary lesson, but it's one that we all need to just revisit because the best and sharpest among us will be, find it profitable to revisit the old pathways that our God has ordained for His children to follow. So I want to thank you this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles now to the most complete chapter in the Bible on the Holy Days, both the Sabbath and the annual Holy Days, and that will take us to the book of Leviticus, chapter number 23. Leviticus chapter number 23. If you'll be so kind now to turn to Leviticus chapter number 23. Uh, we will look at some of the succinct and blessed areas of this rather marvelous chapter found in the Bible. Leviticus chapter number 3. God our Father, we humbly thank you this morning that you would bless this congregation here and assembled, that we, your children, living in a very, very difficult time of history, a time in history when millions and millions of people are lost without a clear biblical path to follow and walk in. Thank you, dear Lord God, that out of your great love and mercy, your great unbounded love you chose to open the eyes of this congregation. Father, we understand that none of us are deserving, but you have made possible through the 
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to open our blind eyes that we may walk in the light of biblical truth. And for that, we give you all glory and honor. We ask you now to bless this word and help us to understand it more completely. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. If you'll be so kind to lend me your ears for just a little while, I'll be promised to return them here shortly. But I'd like for you to turn with me now and let's, let's read the first four verses of chapter number 23 from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Thank you. I'd like everyone to join in the reading. Now, you'll notice in the King James Bible that the word Lord is capitalized. There's a reason for that. It, all the letters are in capital form. That is because this is the ancient Hebrew tetragrammaton and the scholars, the 47 scholars who wrote the King James Bible, they mentioned the name six or seven times and in combination with more than one name a few other times. But for the roughly 7,000 times that the Tetragrammaton appears in the Bible, they chose to capitalize what stands for the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. So when you see those four letters, L-O-R-D in capital uh, form, you know that that is the Tetragrammaton. Those are the letters standing, or the, the letters that will represent that great phrase in Exodus 3, verse 14, when Moses asked God, what his name was, he said, I am that I am. Now that's an expression that is kind of unusual, but we need to remember that in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus made a startling announcement. So startling that the Pharisees and the Sadducees almost had a fainting spell. Because he said to them, John 8, 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now you'd have to think about that a little while, because Jesus announced that the incarnate Old Testament, wonderful, mighty God, manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus could say, I am, over and over and over again, announcing who he was. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I am the resurrection and the life. How many times would Jesus have to tell us, or his people back then, or us today, who he was? And I, and I want to just simply say, folks, you will not gain a lot in your life, theologically speaking, by spending an enormous amount of time to figure out the vowels that were that were not that were not part of the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language only has consonants, and I marvel at the people who spend hours and endless days and weeks and years sometimes trying to figure out how to write and to spell the name of the Tetragrammaton. The truth is. If you know who Jesus Christ is, that's what you need to know. And that's what Jesus told Thomas. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What more do we need to know? 
In John 13, now the Gospel of John is really loaded with the idea that who Jesus is. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, look, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Now, there's a lot of people that I know over the years that wouldn't even use the word Lord. Jesus said, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And if you drop down to verse 17, it says... If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So I want to introduce the idea of this tetragrammaton here in verse 1 of chapter 23 in the book of Leviticus. Let's read now verse 1 again. And the Lord Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, now, I love the way that reads. Isn't it marvelous that we have a sovereign, uncreated God who loved his children so much that he would talk directly to Moses, the man he raised up from the desert, tending sheep, Moses, the great lawgiver, is being instructed from heaven now. And this is what he is told to say. Verse 2 together. Speak unto the children of Israel. Say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. We'll stop there now for a moment. Calling your attention, beloved, to the first four verses and their importance. You will notice that leading us out in the ancient pathway of time is the Sabbath. Now, I know that you people know this, and this is just reaffirming what you know, but our children may not understand this, so they need to know that the only people under heaven that ever was given the understanding to sanctify time, that there were to be set times to be made holy unto God were the Hebrew people. And that knowledge was passed on through the generations, all the way down through the New Testament, all the way to the end of the apostolic era, of the end of the first century. And when we leave the Bible at the end of the first century, these ancient pathways are still the pathways being followed by those who founded the early church in the New Testament. Now, what happened thereafter over the corridor of time, God is not responsible for because everyone who reads the Bible has an obligation to find these old pathways that are found from Genesis to the end of the first century in the New Testament epistles with the uh, passing of the apostles and all of that generation that witnessed the end of what we call Bible history were still in those ancient pathways. Thereafter, little by little through the generations, they became lost to history. So it's no wonder that we live in a generation today where so many people 
have lost the knowledge of these ancient pathways, and they are truly, uh, they are a significant part of who we are and what we are all about. So I need to call your attention to the two, phrase, two, two words. You'll see holy convocation. Now, what do you think when you see holy convocation? Well, you think of a public gathering, a convocation. You can look this up in any um, good uh, Hebrew lexicon. A convocation is a calling together of God's people for the express purpose of worship. That's the meaning of a convocation. The adjective holy describes the convocation. It's going to be a holy convocation because, because it is called to honor the God who gave it. God loves to hear from his people. And God was so wise to know that if he did not prescribe set times for his people to meet with him, they might have a tendency to just simply fail to meet with him. Yeah. Or they might, when it was convenient, meet with him. Or it might be whenever the Spirit moved them, they would come and gather. But God didn't leave that to chance. Aren't you glad that you serve a God who did not leave the important things of life for random choosing by his people. So God has prescribed in a calendar of time, he made time holy. Now that's the beautiful thing about following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes all things respectable and holy and he sanctified time. He sanctifies wealth. Money is sanctified and made holy by the tithe. Time is made holy by the keeping of the set times of Sabbath worship and holy days. So all of these things we know so well, but sometimes they grow a little bit stale and uh, not so well understood by those who are living today. There's a point that's being made here in the first four verses that there's a world of people that overlook. Now, I've had many people tell me that the Holy Sabbath day is just a day of rest. Yes, it is all of that. The, the Holy Sabbath is a rest. It's a rest where we actually rest in Christ. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So no one is going to wrestle with the idea that or question the idea that we are truly uh, at rest on a holy Sabbath. Now, it's my understanding and my belief that all of us are in a state of great rest right now. I would, I would be uh, willing to wager a guess that if, ever, if the blood pressure of everyone in this congregation were taken right now, you will not find a time at any point when your blood pressure will be more uh, stable and, and as good as it can be right where you are right now. Because I think enormous things happen on the Sabbath day, including the regulation of our bodies. I believe there's a rhythm to time. There's a rhythm to the set times that God has ordained. Now, I cannot validate this, cannot prove it, 
as in a scientific exper experiment, but there's a community out in Loma Linda, California that have tried uh, empirical proof of the idea that on the Sabbath day, the heartbeat slows down. I don't know if that's absolutely factual, but they claim it is that the heartbeat slows down. And it has been demonstrated in uh, medical history that people who observe a Sabbath of rest have on average 10 years added to their life. Don't you find that significant? I do, because that's one of the benefits of taking time to remember your God on the set time that he has ordained. It's called the Holy Sabbath. That day is also to be appointed a holy convocation. So best wishes to those who believe that the Sabbath day has no place necessarily required for a holy convocation. I believe there is a definitive call for a holy convocation on the Sabbath day. But it's not something that I uh, am conjuring up out of my own thinking here. We could actually turn to other witnesses in the Bible to demonstrate that convocations were held on the Holy Sabbath day. So the idea of a holy convocation is very important. In fact, calling you back to verse 2, that these feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. So that's that's making us aware right from the starting point that convocations are part of making time sanctified and holy unto God. Now, there's no other uh, people in the world that I know of that have ever attempted to make time holy. And we make our time, the, 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 our walk through this world is made a holy walk as we observe the set times that God has ordained in the pathway called the weekly Sabbath. So the first four verses then make the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath, a part of what we call the festival calendar. So it's not something that is set apart as though it were not important and for many years, we here at this body, back in 1941, the congregation here celebrated what they called a spring, summer, and fall conference. Now, we hear the word conference a lot, and I'm not opposed to it at all. But for many years, we celebrated a conference three times in a year. It was a very simple thing for us to do in reading the Bible. And that's really all people need to do is read the Bible. Just read the Bible. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be uh, blessed with some kind of a superior mind. Uh, most of us have a very, uh, just an average mind. And you, the Bible is written for average-minded people. Now, it's got some profound areas for the super smart, and they're still trying to figure it out. One guy told me uh, what he thought about, he's a very intelligent guy. He said, well, the more I read the Bible and study the Bible and, and uh, contemplate what's in the Bible, I know more and more about less and less. Because the Bible humbles any mind that will spend time in it. The Bible is profoundly profoundly challenging to the to the greatest intellect but it's also designed to guide the most humble person that God has ever created forward into Bible truth so the Bible tells us then 
that the holy convocational pathway begins with the weekly Sabbath. Now, the rest of this entire chapter is going to deal with the festival calendar of holy days. And I'll just quickly review them because Leviticus 23 is a rather uh, lengthy, very lengthy chapter, and it could become quite involved for us. In fact, this would be a, a prolonged Bible study if we were to look closely. What you're going to find when you read Leviticus 23 is this. The King James Bible has delineated between a Sabbath that is weekly and a Sabbath that is annual. So I'm going to give you an example of, of a weekly Sabbath versus an annual Sabbath. And they, the word Sabbath appears in, in, in both the, the weekly idea, but there's also Sabbaths that only fall once a year. They are called high, holy, convocational days. So if we look, if we look, for example, let's say that we go to verse 11, look down at Leviticus 23, 11. This is talking about the high priest waving the sheaf of barley before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. Now the word Sabbath is not capitalized. So would you think on reading there that it's a weekly event or an annual event? Is this, is this Sabbath something that's going to happen once a year or once every seven days? Well, it's an annual Sabbath. And the word Sabbath, if you look it up, you can go to a Hebrew lexicon. And it's a different root word than the weekly Sabbath. This is a Sabbath that is observed uh, during the um, Feast of Passover, but it is still a weekly Sabbath. So it's word, root word in strong, 7676. It's still a weekly Sabbath, even, so, even though it's calling you to do something during the Passover, still a weekly Sabbath. But let me give you another uh, time when it's an annual Sabbath. So this time we're going to go to a different place. Let's go to the Day of Trumpets. We just celebrated trumpets here. But let's go to Leviticus 23. And you will see there that in verse 24, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath. Now, that is not a weekly Sabbath. That is an annual Sabbath called a memorial of the blowing of the trumpets. We celebrate trumpets one day each year. So that, that holy convocation there, that word Sabbath is speaking of a Sabbath that only falls one time during the year, that's on the day of trumpets. And that root word there is 7677, which is slightly different than the weekly Sabbath. So I just point that out. And Leviticus 23 does a beautiful job, actually, of delineating between the annual and the weekly Sabbaths. But more on that uh, at some other point in time. What we'd like to do now, church, is to ask you to turn to the book of Genesis. Let's go back to the book of Genesis and find out the origin of the weekly Sabbath. I don't know how many of you have ever considered this. The weekly Sabbath is one of the most important events in your life. Why is that true? For many reasons. Because when you observe a weekly Sabbath... You are coming into accountability every week with the God who gave you life. Every week when Sabbath day comes, it's time to enter into a special 
rest, and contemplation of the God who give you life. So it's a wonderful way to make yourself accountable to God. It's a wonderful way. And a true Sabbath is not a Sabbath where people gather, they have a worship, time of worship, and then they go home and they get ready and go for a, for a boating activity on the afternoon. You don't turn the Holy Sabbath into half a day of worship and a half a day of recreation. It's to be a day set apart and made holy unto God. So the Sabbath is a complete day of rest and worship. But let's go back to the foundation. And that takes us back to Genesis chapter number 1. When God lay out the foundation of his created world, you'll notice in Genesis 1 that the evening and the morning were the first day, evening and morning are the second day. We come all the way to the end of the sixth day, verse number thir uh, Genesis 1, uh, and we'll go all the way to uh, the end of the sixth day, the end of the sixth day, and in Genesis chapter number 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, I know there's a world of people that have tried to make the word day which is a Hebrew, from the Hebrew root word yam, they have tried to make this an elongated day. To accompany evolution, they say, well, this day could have been a million years long. Could have been five million years long. No, 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 no. It wasn't five million years long. It was a solar day, just like the Bible says. Now, when you read the Bible there will be things you may not understand. Particularly if you are deeply ingrained in worldly knowledge. So you have to be very cautious in reading the Bible. And remember that simply because you do not understand it does not mean that God is not meaning what he's saying. So there's too many people that want to take the very simple language of the Bible and they want to somehow put their own human interpretation into the Word of God. So we come to the end of the sixth day and we know that the word day as used in the Bible, if I say the day of atonement, that is a specific day that has reference to one day on the calendar, a fast day. So not every day is alike. That's one use of the word, the Hebrew root word yom, Y-O-M. Another way would be to look at, sometimes the Bible would say the day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment, the day that God will call call the world into accountability. That's another way to use the word day. So you have to let the context of the Bible interpret itself. The Bible will interpret itself if you allow it to. And remember, what the, what is the Bible promises? But when the Holy Ghost has come, when the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, has come, he will guide you into all truth. That's a promise from God. That he will guide you into all truth. That he will bring to your remembrance all things that are necessary and true for you. So when we read the Bible then, we read it just as it is written and believe what God says. So here we go now. We've come to the end of the sixth day of creation. Day number six, Genesis 2 verse 1 says this, And the heavens and the earth were finished, 
and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. Now that's an interesting statement. It really means that God did end his work. God did not leave anything unfinished that he intended to create. There was no new energy and no new matter created after day six. No new energy, no new matter. You cannot find anything that God created from nothing after Genesis at the end of the sixth day. So somebody could say, well, what about the woman Eve? No. God took from Adam that which he had already created. The matter, material substance, came from Adam's body. And the only thing that was placed in that body when he created the woman that did not come from Adam was her spirit and her soul, which is not made of matter. So there's no new matter and no new energy after day number two. God completed his work, which he had made. He knew what he was doing day one through day six. So he comes to the end now of day number six. And he, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Now, God did an awful lot of things on, in the six days of creation. Do you think he suddenly got tired and thought, thought well, I, I need to rest. I need to take a break. I, I've created the planets. I've hallowed out the oceans. I've heaped up the mountains. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm going to create myself a Sabbath of rest. Don't think God did that. In fact, I know he didn't. Because the Bible says... Isaiah chapter 40, he faints not, neither grows weary. So God doesn't grow tired. God created the Sabbath for the blessing of his people. In fact, the New Testament scripture will tell us that the Sabbath was made for man. It's not like God created the Sabbath and he, then he said, whoops, I need to get some people made. No, he made the Sabbath for his people. And every one of these ancient pathways is a pathway to living your life in harmony with the Creator. And your life will be so much better than it would be if you simply ignored the ancient pathways set by our Father. So we read on here in Genesis 2, verse number 2. Seventh day, God ended his work. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. There's a lot of information packed into those two verses. So it's kind of like if you had a backpack and you were packing verses into it, if you pack those two verses, the backpack's going to be pretty full because when the Bible says that he blessed the seventh day, what do you think that means? He blessed the seventh day. So God said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm going to bless that day. Now, let's look at that word blessed for a moment. Now, if you go back to an original Hebrew root, you can do that in Jesenius or any other good lexicon. And it will tell you that the word blessed comes from a Hebrew root word that means to praise, salute, to kneel, to bless God. I love the phrase, it's a primary root meaning to kneel and praise and bless God. 
And that's significant. Because when God said that he blessed this day, he blessed it because on that day, he will be remembered and worshipped. That's what makes it so special. And then notice, he not only blessed it, but it also says, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So everybody knows what the word sanctified means. It's that Hebrew root word, godesh, and it means to set apart, consecrate, be made holy unto God. It's anything that is sanctified is set apart. It's made holy unto God. So the seventh day then becomes very holy unto God. It's a very significant day. Really, really important. Now, I'm amazed because in my Bible, when I come to the first mention of the weekly Sabbath in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm intrigued by what the commentarian says in his evaluation of the Sabbath. He says that after Moses wrote the book of Genesis in chapter 2, for 2,500 years, there was not a word mentioned about the Sabbath. So the idea might come to your mind that our people were without a Sabbath knowledge from the creation all the way to the time that God ordained the Sabbath for Israel. But that's, not, that's absolutely not true. It's simply not true. Now, in the extra-biblical literature, which I'm not building doctrine from, but I can go to the book of Jubilees, I can go to the book of Enoch, I can go to any of the pseudepigrapha books, I can go to the apocryphetical book, books of the Bible, but I can stay in the Bible without leaving the Bible to prove that the Sabbath has always been a part of God's children. And I can assure you that Adam and Eve knew the Sabbath. I can assure you that Adam passed it on to his son Abel before he was murdered by Cain. Seth knew that truth. Enos, Cainan, Mahalaleel, Jared, Enoch, and all the patriarchs all through the ages observed the Sabbath. Every one of them. It was their pattern for living their life. So it's very significant. And so I'll call your attention to something that I think is significant. When the flood, Noah's flood, I think some of you have heard a little bit about the flood lately. In Genesis, in the book of Genesis, chapter number 8, you'll notice that in verse number 10... Noah sent a dove out of the ark, and uh, after that, he did not attempt to uh, do anything different until a week had passed. So the, the week is a significant increment or measurement of time. Now, the word week, W-E-E-K, and Sabbath, Correction, the word week and seventh are very closely related to the same Hebrew root word. When you read the word seven and week, and going back to the ancient Hebrew, it's going to be very comparable. They're almost one and the same. Because a week is seven, seven days in the measurement of time is going to be a week. So when Noah measured time in the ark, it was every seven days there was an incremental uh, time. So I'm sure that Noah was observing the Sabbath in the ark. He was in the ark for more than a year, 370 days. That was a long time, and they were, I'm sure, holding a holy convocation as they celebrated 
the Sabbath day when it came to them. Now, I read an, uh, there was an argument that somebody raised one time and said, well, you know, we can never get together on the Sabbath because if you live on one side of the world and somebody lives on the other side of the world, Sabbath is never going to be on the same day. Well, that's not the way you look at it, family. Here's what you remember about the Sabbath. You observe the Sabbath when it comes to you. Doesn't matter where you live. You can live on either side of the international date line. And when the Sabbath comes to you, that's the Sabbath. You don't have to be looking at the whole wide world. When the Sabbath comes to you, that's when you keep the Sabbath. Now, you may find it interesting to remember that when Jacob goes to find a wife, he's going to serve for Rachel for a week of years. And you can find this in Levit uh, Genesis 29. You can go to the uh, 29th chapter of Genesis, where in verse 18... Jacob is going to be serving seven years for Rachel. That's quite, a, that's quite a dowry. Now, I don't know any father that has required a seven-year servile time from a, from a prospective husband for his bride. Do you? That's quite a price. So I'd a, I, I could ask the question, would any of you men have worked seven years for the woman you married? <laughs> I don't know how many men would actually uh, be willing to make that sacrifice. But Jacob must have found something in Rachel that was really, really enticing. So God bless Jacob. And can you feel his wonder, amazement, and bewilderment when he woke up? on the morning after the wedding ceremony, and he had a different woman. I've always wondered what in the world he was doing later when he went to bed, who he, if he didn't know who he went to bed with. But see, the Bible's filled with a lot of questions. And that's why it's a good book to read. Stimulate your thinking. The Bible gets rid of all the wrinkles in your brow and causes you to think. So I've always admired Jacob for his devotion. And he measured that time element in a week of years. So it shows you the longevity of how the week of time was measured. Now, I'm going to just mention a couple of things here in closing. When Israel is out in the wilderness, and they are having quite a difficult time because of hunger, remember that God gives them the manna. God gives Israel the manna, and it takes up an entire chapter in Exodus 16. Now, God told them expressly, in, as recorded in Exodus 16 on, in verse 5, He says that on the sixth day, I'm in verse 5, Exodus 16, They shall prepare that which they bring in, the manna. It shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, that's interesting because the word prepare there, is the foundational root word for the day we call preparation. Every Sabbath is preceded by a day of preparation. That's when you take notice that the Sabbath is coming and let's bring all the events together on the sixth day before the Sabbath arrives. So the Israelites are out there in the wilderness and they're, they're, you know, they're gathering their manna every day. Now Moses tells them, look, the instruction from our God is that on the seventh day there will be no manna. So please gather enough on the sixth day to suffice you for the Sabbath. And on the seventh day, your manna will be preserved 
There will be nothing wrong with that manna. It will be good for food. Now, some of the people, typically as it is with Israel, did not really believe. And so they went out on the Sabbath day to gather their manna, and there was none. God told them there would be none, and they found there was none. So they were chided, chastened, scolded, and this is what God said to them through Moses. And he says here in Exodus 16, chapter number 16, he says to them, Moses said, eat that today, I'm in verse 25, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord, today ye shall find it in the field. No, ye shall not find it in the field. It will not be there. Six days ye shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for, the, for to gather, and they found none. And, and the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my, my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. One other comment on the Sabbath, and we will bring this lesson to closure. One other comment. If the congregation would be so kind to turn to Exodus chapter 31. In Exodus 31, there is a very significant event happening with ancient Israel. And without reading a lot of verses, let me just read some selected passages from Exodus chapter number 31. I know these are very familiar with, you, with mo most of you, so I know it's just simply a review. But in chapter number 31 of the book of Exodus, verse 12, And the Lord Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak! Thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep. For it is a sign between you and ye, me, between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. God sanctifies his people when they observe his set patterns of time. When we follow the rhythm of God's sanctified, set-apart days, we are sanctified unto God as a people. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. And then he goes on to say, Six days may work be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. The Sabbath is the only law in the Ten Commandments that is a covenant unto itself. The Ten Commandments are central to the Old Covenant of the Bible. But the Holy Sabbath within the Ten Commandments, God made us a separate covenant because of the importance of that significant day that he sanctified and set apart. So there's more language devoted to the Sabbath than any other law in the Ten Commandments. More coverage is given to that. It also says, remember the Sabbath day, because it had been around for a very long time. It was not something that just appeared suddenly when the Ten Commandments were given. So it's a covenant, so I'm going to read verse 17 from Exodus 31. 
It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. I don't know how long you think forever is, but I think it's time without end. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath is a witness to creation. Every day we celebrate the Sabbath, we are saying no, no, and no, no to evolution. We're simply destroying the myth of, of evolution, and that's all it is, is a myth. We honor the creation every Sabbath day. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is told to remind the children of Israel that the Sabbath is their day to celebrate freedom from servitude, from slavery. Now listen carefully, church. Only a free people can keep a Sabbath. Without a country that honors freedom and Christian liberty, you have no Sabbath. Under communism in the 20th century, they made a 10-day week, and it didn't work for them at all. During the French Revolution, they tried a 10-day week. It didn't work at all. Almost every people on earth that have observed time have observed a day of rest called the Sabbath every seven days. So the week is a historical increment or measurement of time. Well, may God bless you today. And I know that we did not uh, move deeply into Leviticus 23, but it's a very, very involved study. And you're welcome to pick up a handout that I have just outlined that entire chapter for you, if you choose to pick it up. Let's all be standing now.